Welcome to Mod Pod, the Museum of Dance podcast, where we explore why we dance. I'm your host, Jamie Ray Wright. Today's guest has had a wide-ranging career, from the classical ballet to commercial dance and everything in between. He has danced for some of the most acclaimed companies in the United States. He is an educator who has taught for respected universities. And for more than 25 years, he's been the driving creative force behind his own dance company. We at Museum of Dance are thrilled to welcome Robert Moses, founder and artistic director of Robert Moses Ken. Thank you for spending time with us, Robert. Oh, hey, listen, thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, you know, Robert, you know, people know your work, but they don't necessarily know you. Can you tell me a little bit about where you're from and how you found dancing your youth? Oh, wow. Okay, that's sort of a very broad question. I think the... I'm from Philadelphia, and I began dancing the way I think most people uh, began dancing when I was a young teenager, but not that sort of being trained in a dance studio way where someone stands in front of the room and shows you the steps. I moved to uh, California after the passing of my mother when I was 16 and began dancing in the very last portion of uh, the last semester of high school. And from there, I studied uh, at various um, colleges and universities and began dancing professionally. You mentioned uh, your early dance was not in the way of people standing at the front of the room giving you pedagogy. What, what was that dance training like early on? Well, it wasn't training. It was so much as it was uh, me watching family members, my niece and some other folks and our friends or people just dancing or dancing with friends in uh, in the world. And so you picked up steps by just watching folks and doing the stuff and uh, practicing it a little bit yourself and make you that you had the feeling of it and that you were in the sort of vibe of it when you were out uh, moving and dancing. So mostly it's a social dance and not so much a performative kind of situation. Yes, but, you know, social dance is, is performative. You know, you, you're say, dancing socially. You're saying something. You're trying to uh, get people to watch something. You're trying to enjoy yourself. You're saying, I am enjoying myself when I'm doing this, hopefully uh, getting some attention because you're doing it in a way that is um, – at least attractive to others in one way or another, meaning people watch it and get some kind of pleasure out of it. So, yeah. So you moved to California. Yes. And uh, what brought you into dance here in a formal way? Uh, well, I've told this story so many times, but I think people, anyone that's heard me say this may be bored with it, but I was in, in high school. I moved from North Philadelphia to Orange County, California in the late 70s. Woo, culture shock. And from uh, Rizzo, from the end of Rizzo's um, <laughs> Rizzo's um, reign in Philadelphia to the um, to Reagan, Orange County. And it was culture shock. So I went from sort of going to and from school and work directly at 16 to going into high school that had um, archery, and I was in the, an archery class, and some of the kids, because kids of any age are not, don't make the best choices, these kids were shooting, some of them were shooting arrows into the backyards of the people who lived behind school, and, and the powers that be thought it might be better if they canceled that class. And so when they canceled the class, the options were football, volleyball, and dance, and I chose dance because I was probably as big as my index finger is now in terms of how much I weighed and how much muscle mass I had. And that's why I didn't want to play football because I'm not going to give you an excuse to just run over me. Um, and volleyball, I knew nothing about, although I came to actually love volleyball later at the watching of it. I was never any good at playing it. And dance. And so my first dance teacher was a woman named Penny, my very first dance teacher. That was a woman named Penny Walton, who was a wonderful um, woman who helped me a lot, sort of introduced me to all of that, that world. So Penny Walton, was he a uh, former performer or uh, uh, someone in the commercial world in the Los Angeles area? Uh, what was her, uh, what was her deal? 
Oh, that's a, that's a really, really good question. I don't know. Penny Walton was my high school dance teacher. So I don't know if Penny Walton was a for, former Broadway star or a PE teacher who decided that the world needed more dance and dance students. But uh, she was kind. She invited me into the classroom. She made sure that I knew the etiquette was, what to wear, what not to wear. And it made me feel a little less the alien in a class in which I knew nothing because I had never taken that kind of uh, dance before. So did she start to do it ballet or with creative movement or what kinds of things did you do? No, no, this was this was a high school jazz class, which is which I think is why it was it was so I was so able to pick up the vocabulary because even though it was a jazz class and had um, all these strange stretches and I had to wear a dance belt and she, by the way she told me what to go out and get <laughs> and asked me if I knew how to put it on. I think I figured it out. And uh, it was it, it was just uh, you know that it was an interesting experience. Like you know, at at point I danced so much I'd forgotten a little bit about my first. I wouldn't say that Penny Walton was my Penny Walton was my first most influential dance teacher. I think that was Linda Soul in a lot of ways. Uh, and I called her my first dance teacher for a long time because she really had such an impact on me. But. But Penny Walton was very important in that she made me feel uh, comfortable or relatively comfortable in that situation. I think, Brandon, it seems that moving into a jazz class that your uh, uh, experience with social dance certainly gave you a foundation that you would have be, be able to navigate that much easier than someone just coming in cold. Sure, I think I think well, it's part. You know, there were there were some steps that I obviously you you do. Oh, you go. Right, left, right. I get that. That's and they call that pas de beret. Okay, all right. Right, left, right. It's pas de beret. Try to do that, and I know I know what rhythm is, and I can shift my weight. Uh, but they were also using the pop songs of that moment of that period, so it wasn't like I was trying to go into a class where I didn't have a, a musical training and someone was uh, giving me the basics of uh, how to remanage. Uh, a cage or something like that. Okay. All right. <laughs> so you, you've moved on in high school. You've moved on to college programs. You uh, apparently liked it a great deal and wanted to, to keep doing it. Uh, what were your college programs like? What were, I'm sorry, say again. What were your college programs like? Well, I, it was it, more than the programs. It, it was the people. I mean, I had, when I was at the first school I went to, uh, actually the very first school, and if you know, when you ask someone about their past, you really have to think, well, now what exactly did I do? So after high school, I went to meet, I knew I liked the dance thing and I wanted to go. I didn't want to take the chance of not sort of, of moving forward. And immediately, I think after the first semester, after the last semester of high school, and two weeks later, I was uh, enrolled in Golden West College, which was a community college, um, to take dance for the summer. And then immediately after that, Orange Coast College, which is where I was um, for the next two years. I got my associates before I went into um, Long Beach and got my um, bachelor's. And those were really interestingly varied because it was California in the 80s. First of all, it was very inexpensive to do relative to what um, a college student could pay. So that means it was really inexpensive. I had everything from Afro-Haitian to show dance to little it's um, bits of Bratnagion, ballet, modern jazz, uh, just all over the place. So getting a well-rounded, I mean, that's, that's really a uh, tribute to the community college system that you can get the kind of well-rounded education in the community colleges. Absolutely, I'm a big I'm a big believer and supporter in that being a an access uh, avenue for whomever in whatever way they might want to move forward. It doesn't have that same kind of it doesn't have the same kinds of pressures that going straight into a four year university might have for uh, some students. And it's there those community colleges are generally more community. Uh, not to play on that word, but community based in terms of the population and a real variety of people, people who are just going into community college, 
I mean, just coming out of high school, people who are returning because they want to do something more with their careers, people who are, who've had a full career and want to just expand their educational opportunities. And so I, when I was in class, I'd be in class with other people my age, uh, 18, 19, and there'd be people in their 40 and occasionally some folks who were older than that and were retirees in their, in general ed uh, classes. And so initially it really made me think that this, this dance thing really is for everybody. Uh, you know, you had to figure out how to do it if you were 16, it's, uh, I'm sorry, if you were 18 as opposed to 60 in a slightly different way, but it was open to everyone. I thought that was amazing and wonderful. That sounds like a wonderful experience. So you moved on from college. Did you start a professional career immediately? Well, well I, was, I was talking about um, one of my more influential teachers and I'm talking about Linda Soul, and uh, I was, you know, I was taking class right outside of LA, right? So there were opportunities and auditions and things that you go to all the time. And one of the things that uh, Linda said to me is, you know, Robert, after about a year, she said, you know, Robert, you, you're probably good enough to start getting some uh, work going forward right now, but you really want to think about what it is that you want to do with your dance or your dance career, however you think about it. You want to think about really what it is you want to do with it. You know, do you just want to, she didn't quite put it like this, but the, the gist was, do you just want to sort of go from uh, job to job or just do this thing in LA where you're bouncing from video to video? Because you have to remember, this was at the, near the beginning of the whole MTV thing. So they were trying to, fit, they, were, they were looking for dancers and people would pop up in videos and you'd see your friends occasionally jump on some video with some, some rising star and, um, that really, what do you want out of 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 this career? And uh, somewhere along the way, I decided really that what I wanted to be, what I wanted to do for the most part, was art. And uh, that's where I am now. So you moved. Uh, did you move to New York to do this? Did you stay in uh, L.A.? Uh, no, no, I finished, well, I've, after art school, I went to Long Beach, and I did actually move to New York for a hot minute, I went to Ailey's for a hot minute, and was there, and was not at that point in my life sort of wanting to have the, wanting to starve in that way, I mean, I was ready to dance, and when I say Ailey's, I meant the Ailey's school, and it was, the school was great, but it was sort of like, school and work and I had just done four years of that thing where I'd, I'd get up in the morning and I'd uh, either walk or bike or a moped over to my job in the cafeteria, work for a couple of hours, make my breakfast and my lunch for years, then go to class from eight until, you know, four, whenever class ended, something like six. And then depending on the job I had, go over to the mall and work another job, depending on uh, that, or the, you know, during the period I worked for, uh, or performed with the Young Americans, if anybody remembers those, go over to Young Americans and sing and dance. And I had already sort of done that bit for four straight years. And so I thought, okay, it's time for me to work, not, I should not um, continue to prepare to work, although you always need to continue to prepare. You know, every time you say something, you, a little gym pops up. Young Americans? <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you remember the Young Americans? They're kind of like upper people. Yes, they were. And they were their, they were their own big thing. And now you have to remember, I was in Orange County, uh, California, so I'd show up at these things. And I remember we had red, white, and blue costumes that we'd be uh, we'd put on, and we'd sing these songs and I was looking for, I was looking for experience and I know I ended up performing. So I was looking for experience and audition for them. And it was um, a way of sort of figuring out that part of, I wonder if I get, can't or want to do this kind of a thing as well. And so I did that for about a year and uh, uh, it is uh, something I don't bring up much, but the young American chess. Well, I have not heard about them in a long time. A long time. This is good. You know, this is work. You know, you uh, remember as a child watching uh, Hullabaloo and Shindig, and say, "Okay, these are these are trained dancers, and they are they're doing the holly golly behind Paul Revere narrators." 
Oh yeah, they were all not quite new. But these folks did these, these these you know, it was a real it was the real deal. Yeah. Was, um uh you know, you trained and those people could sing. I remember those people could really sing. It was really kind of uh it was a fun thing for the moment. So, you know, after the early spent, I did you did you dance with any classical ballet companies in, in New York? Not in New York immediately, but I what before oh and I guess I skipped over when I was at um when I was at Long Beach, I danced for the Long Beach Ballet, which I think at some point became the, one of the um, iterations of the L.A. Ballet. When David Wilcox, I don't know what David is doing now, if he's still around, but when uh, David Wilcox ran the Long Beach Ballet and did all the the um, standard things that you might do, Capella, Nutcracker, I'm sure there were you know a few things. Oh, I was with them for about a year, year and a half, and did all of all of that stuff. And it was a lot of fun. There's a lot of education and uh, sort of being a part of those things. And now let me see. Let's jump back to what was your question? I sort of went backwards because you're asking if I did any ballet companies in New York. I wound up being a member of American Ballet Theater after I'd been a member of Twilight Tharp uh, for a little bit. So when Twyla went over to um, uh, when went over to ABT, I was able to go over with that crew for a little bit of time, uh, but didn't do much over there. But I was a member of the company. And if you if you have a souvenir book from that time, you'll find my face in it somewhere. And after that point, I don't think I danced with any ballet companies. But I went from since I was in Miller for a while, and then I went over to uh, to ABT. Well, let's go back to Twyla. I mean, she's one of the prime movers in American modern dance, and at least of the second wave. Uh, what was that experience like? It's artistically. You know, I had always, always had a great deal of respect uh, for Twyla and her work, and it then that only grew when I was there. I mean, the work was extraordinary. I think Twyla is uh, and was grounded in. Really, who she is and what her work needed to be at that moment, and that um, she worked toward it. I remember being in the rehearsal process when she was what rehearsal process for what became. I wasn't in the dance, but I was in the rehearsal process for what became Route uh, sixty six, which I think wound up on. I think being premiered on um, American Ballet Theater when when uh, it, she went over there. And I remember seeing some of the most brilliant. I mean, what's interesting is when you're in a rehearsal process, sometimes things are really amazing and in the process, and and sometimes they make a stage and sometimes they don't. And I remember being in the process and watching her go through some of that, watching some of the rehearsals. I was. She asked me to take notes one day, and I think I screwed it up so badly that she was like, "Okay, why don't you go rehearse something else?" But she did some amazingly brilliant things. And some of it didn't make it to stage because of, you know, because her process was like, this is going to go in a different direction. But I remember seeing things in rehearsal and thought, that is really literally just brilliant. And so I was really happy with that part of it. Was she very specific in the way she uh, set work or did she uh, give the dancers a lot of freedom to create? How was that? Well, I didn't. I didn't see her set a lot of work. I saw her a little work, not a lot of work, because I I came in. I was new, and so I went into some of the rep. I don't remember there being, from what I remember, I don't remember there being a lot of freedom, except in that. Uh, I would guess I would say the way in which you did something might um, suggest something to her. But I think I think she was very much in control. Now this is a limited. I don't make it sound like I have some kind of expert on um, Twyla or what Twyla was doing. This is my impressions as a dancer who went through there. And how long were you with her? Just about, I was there about a year, I think. Uh, did a, a three tours. We went to Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, LA, uh, something, stuff like that. Uh, and then, and then she was transitioning into ABT, and then they went over there. It's a very interesting time. She's she's had a very interesting career as far as that. Also, the Broadway thing going on, and 
television stuff. It's it's very interesting to see how that career has a uh, had its own trajectory as uh, as have you. Uh, so you, I understand you danced with ODC for a period of time here. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Glad. Well, you had a question with that. No, no, just you know, open ended. Tell me a little bit about that and how it was uh, formed up in those things you're doing now. Well, uh, let's see. I started with OD- ODC pretty closely to after when I finished with school. I went, finished with school, went to New York for a short period. And as I said, to the LA school and decided that I'd already sort of been through that experience. Came back, auditioned for ODC. I wrote a little thing about it that sucks about me traveling up to San Francisco with my last 60 bucks, you know, to try to get this job. I remember auditioning for them. There was another guy who was auditioning with them. I think we had to audition over two days. We had to take class and be in rehearsal and blah, blah, blah. But at any rate, I got the job and they brought me back up. I stayed, I think, for the first week I was there. I stayed with uh, Katie uh, Nelson in her place. She had, a, she had her husband and she had a brand new baby, uh, Haley, which, uh, and they were staying on Third Street or somewhere in Bayview, I think. And then I stayed with Charles Franklin, who I think wound up being uh, one of the, um, someone behind Beach Pike at Babylon, but I don't actually remember if that's true or not. I think he worked there, his partner worked there. But I stayed with him for about a week, and then uh, finally was able to find the place that I stayed in the mission, which was a wonderful spot. In San Francisco, on my first, uh, I was in that particular spot for three years. My rent went from two twenty a month, $220, not $2,000. $220, but $220 a month to $225 a month. And I shared the flat with one other person who was a travel writer who was away uh, often. And so, so I, my experience in San Francisco, I think I got an exact uh, perfect experience to come into San Francisco and uh, feel like, oh, this is going to be fantastic. I can afford to live here. And then... And I started ODC. I think they were, I think there were 10 folks at that time. I think they were usually around that time. I worked with them for about three years and then went away for about two years. And I think came back and was with them for about another year and a half, two years, something like that. Was it during this period that you started your own choreographic path? Uh, I did a well, no, no, no. I started choreographing when I was in school. Sorry, let me raise my voice. I started choreographing when I was in school. I still have some of those dances those early, early dances on tape. And occasionally if I, if I can manage to look at them, I do because they're fun to watch in, in one way. <laughs> it's kind of fun to watch. Like, you know, did I really wear that when I was, uh, <laughs> when I was, when I was 20, did I really wear that? But, uh, well, that, that was a dark time. And <laughs> Oh my God. There were a lot of plastic clothes that you couldn't really get near a heater in because they would just melt, you know? But yeah, I so I started choreographing there. I I actually uh, one of the early one of my early moments of sort of being happy with what I was doing is I did a solo for my then girlfriend who wound up working. I think for she wound up working for Disney and then she went to Tokyo Disneyland and whatnot. But I did a solo for her, which I had taken to the college um, conferences and whatnot, and that wound up getting on the local portion of the 1984 Olympics Arts Festival, something that was tangentially connected to the arts festival called Connecticut's Dance Festival. And, you know, that's where you, know, you had people like Pina Bausch and Twyla and Ailey all came to town and it was like, okay, this is possible. This is this is a, a place that I can be as a human being in terms of making work because I, I see like minds or, or like interests or proclivities around me. So. Did you have influences in creating early on? I'm, I'm okay. those folks. So, oh, oh, did that influence? Oh, I think they were, they were all the folks they would be. So I think one of the other advantages of being an art student at the time is that you didn't have so many of the influences that you do today there's so much to be influenced by today i don't know if all uh, folks find their voices um 
quickly as they might. There's so many things sort of pouring in, and I understand that I like to pour a lot of things in too to be sort of moved around. But at that time, I would go to the I would go to the library, and there were the dance and all of the dance in America uh, films or documentaries that were from I can't remember the name of the New York station that used to put these things out. Uh, but they would put these things out, and there were all those Dance in America things. There was the, there were laser discs at a point, and you could find videotapes of, of Taylor, Ailey, Cunningham, Tharp, uh, you know, and a few other folks. There was some stuff, some mixed video in about experimental dance in Europe. I watched all of those things about a thousand times, and. You know, and obviously my dance teachers and, and all the local folks where I was taking and studying dance and going to classes, you know, took from Mary Jane Eisenberg, I think, who at one point wound up being uh, executive director for Joe Good. And she was, she had her own thing going, which people used to call Falco, but she had her own thing, sort of magical sort of thing going. And I took from a lot of Cunningham teachers once or twice from Viola Farber when she was, uh, when she came to teach um, master classes, Jeff Slayton, uh, Virginia, uh, I'm sorry, my brain is going to go, uh, 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 the, the woman who's um, running Dance Theater of Harlem now. Oh, Virginia Johnson? Virginia Johnson, Valley with Virginia Johnson. As a matter of fact, the funny story about that is when I, I went to see Dance Theater of Harlem at the, at the uh, Pasadena... I don't remember what it was called. It may have been in Pasadena Playhouse, but I went to see them when they were doing Firebird. Firebird was the big show to see. And they were doing Firebird and um, it might have been Giselle, but I remember going and um, getting permission somehow to take class and getting to the, the stage door. Nobody was there. And I walked in, and I remember one of the most exciting moments. I could have been arrested, but one of the most exciting moments is I walked in, and there was nobody there. And I walked into the dressing rooms, and I looked at their <laughs> at the costumes, and I was just like amazing. And then after that, I got to see the show. I mean, I took, I was I was allowed to take bar, and they're like, okay, thank you, <laughs> you, you can go now. I think was, I think I'd been dancing like a year now, so I took bar. And then I came back and I saw the show and was just blown away by the skill of those folks. Well, it's a, it's a very magical time. And certainly uh, the politics of dance theater of Harlem has a little implications as far as its, its representation. It's uh, showing people that, yes, you too can be one of us. You too can dance. Our dancers don't look a certain way. I, I certainly remember from my own childhood, the two places that I... Uh, Learn about dance was dance in America, and they played on television here in San Francisco. Thank you. Yes, dance in America. Thank you. Yes, that's right. And uh, and then going to see uh, dance theater Harlem and Ailey over at Zellerbach, and seeing people who look like me doing uh, classical ballet and also doing other things as well. Right, and it wasn't just seeing people who look like you. I remember seeing yes, that was that was part of it. There was everybody on. But I remember going to some huge auditorium to see Ailey. It was like a, one of those school things where they have everybody come in. It was huge. There had to be a couple thousand people in this auditorium. And they were doing a um, – they performed a little bit. They did a sort of an open showing of Bill T. Jones's Fever Swamp in Italy. And I thought, Wow. So there was that whole um, thing of the traditional aesthetic and presentation of the body. And then I saw this fever swamp thing. I thought, are you kidding me? Or he, It was amazing. I thought, well, this is really amazing. And then that was someone else. So by watching folks, you get you do get access to other people by just seeing who's doing what when, if you're uh, fortunate enough to catch people at the right time. I just I do remember seeing Fear for Swamp going, what the, you know, and sort of walking out of there and going, okay, now I need to figure out who this person is. Uh, just, just sort of amazing stuff. So as you uh, transition, at some point you start your own company. 
mm-hmm. uh, Robert Moses Ken, which I think it's been what twenty six years now. I think it's actually twenty seven. I think we're in our twenty seventh year. And I mean, I would, and if you count the independent stuff, it's probably more than that. I mean, I did. St- I tried when I was working with uh, other folks. I tried to make some of my own work with it but the thing that happened for me when i was working with other folks is that i couldn't give what i wanted to do the attention i remember i talked to i don't know if anybody remembers there's duncan mcfarland claire whistler or something called mcfarland whistler dance in uh, san francisco at a point and started to make us uh, work on them and it, it kind of came apart i don't remember exactly why but it just was not it wasn't a good a fit or mix of uh, us working together. And I think partially because I I hadn't been working as much as I should have been working in terms of making material, but also that the, the kind of language you need to develop, talk to people about what it is that you're doing versus what they've seen you do on stage and the expectation that they have of you because they've seen you do this side or the other. Um, the vocabulary around those kinds of things weren't really in place in a way that I could f- figure out how to talk about it. But I started, you know, I started making things uh, deliberately, and then at a point in, oh, let's see, probably about in another way, in about ninety. So there was probably a about a five year gap between when I graduated and I'd been making a fair amount of stuff, and when I'd been dancing for people, and then when I started making things again. And so I started making things in San Francisco. It was really wonderful at the point that I started making things because there were a ton of these sort of low, low-tech things to do where you walk in and somebody might literally have, I remember once going to dance, uh, was, um, was dancer stage at that point, and all the lights went out, and Chrissy Kiefer and a whole bunch of people pulled out some flashlights and put the flashlights on the floor. You might have been there. Put the flashlights on the floor to keep the program going. Uh, just because you don't, you don't stop. Just because you don't have lights. <laughs> and so, and so that whole thing happened. The lights came back on at a point. But you know, I did everything from how to, it was a, there was a ballet program where uh, young ballet folks or ballet choreographers were doing their work to experimental things to men dancing to black choreographers i was making a lot of work before the company became the company with um dancers that were around who just sort of poured their heart and soul into um all the things that you were trying to do so it was fantastic so in trying to create your aesthetic creating the aesthetic that you have today i've certainly been watching you over the past 25 years have seen how it has changed. How, how, from your eyes, what do you see about your aesthetic and what is what has changed from the mid nineties to now? Uh, well, what's changed? I don't know if I could tell you. I I think things are in flux. Uh, I think things that haven't changed is I'm always interested. I'm always interested in certain in in. Uh, how dense something might be, how much material someone might be, how much I might be able to communicate in a single moment or in a work. Uh, I'm always interested in people being um, on stage as themselves, sort of interesting folks as opposed to only um, an idea of what I have. And so I really like working with people that other folks will see as people. I'm interested in stories, human stories, stories of human being, human beings becoming more human, not less human, not sort of stepping away from their humanity, but stepping more into it, which is a weird thing to say. Well, tell me a little more about that. Is it a... Well, I, I think, I think part of, part of that is the, there's that dramatic thing of what are you enjoying? What are you struggling with? What are you trying to say to folks that always puts us on the edge of something that's a little uncomfortable or a little bit scary to share. And I find those things are more interesting than only uh, technical uh, responses to a moment or a 
situation or music or or some other stimulus. So it's driven more than by the ideas rather than by the music or by a uh, story that you've over overlapped on the people. Uh, I would say yes, partially. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's just the music. Sometimes you, I mean, when you're when you're younger, you just want to. I think you put the music on. You're like, let me just go, and there, your body just puts out all of this stuff, and and that's amazing. And you try to capture that or recapture that so that you can share that again in another way. But I think you do want also to communicate, for lack of a better word. As I've known you over the years, I know that you have an encyclopedic knowledge of popular music from all different eras. And there are... Uh, Dude, look, do not try to trap me, because I know you, 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 have, you say I have an encyclopedic knowledge, but you are always like talking to me, well, what about, what about this line... In this recording done on this day, it was an alternate take. Oh, and by the way, it wasn't really uh, it, it wasn't really uh, that basis. It was this basis. And if you listen to this run, you'll understand that it's clear. I'm like, what the? <laughs> that is that is Jamie. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not going to do that. You know, I enjoy doing it. But then- and it's fun. It's fun because all right, then I have to I have to walk away. Okay, now what doesn't Jamie know? And I have to come back with something. <laughs> have to really like search for something you don't know about the music. But anyway, go ahead. But one of the things that uh, I wonder about generational, you know, uh, as far as the dancers that you're working with, and also background and interest and that sort of thing. Um, how do you get them to connect with the soundscapes and the music that you're using? I'm not sure I understand the question. Say that again. Well, dancers come from different backgrounds. A lot of dancers are musically oriented. A lot of them aren't. And uh, I mean, they may be musical, they have musicality in their uh, movement, but as far as understanding the context of what they're dancing to and why this piece of music, other rather than another piece of music was chosen for it, they have no idea. They're saying, hey, I'm just moving. I was wondering, how do you get buy-in how do you get them to understand what what's what's going on with some of these things well i think we're we're breathing we're all breathing the same air right and you don't have to i don't need you to i don't need you to get lockstep behind me i just if we're going to have a conversation about something it needs to be a conversation so if i'm relating to music one way and you're relating to music another way i think that's fine as long as i can coach you into being um visually available to the audience in the way that I need you to be available to them, to be um, melodically available, to be rhythmically available to them, to be dramatically available to them. And so it's about coaching the person who may not have the same uh, relationship to whatever it is you're working with, whether it be sound, text, music, um, whatever. Well, a lot of, also a lot of your uh, work is based in the African-American experience and just, you know, being black in America at a certain period of time. And your companies have not always had that profile. Uh, is it also difficult getting them to relate to those stories? Uh, sometimes, but we have to remember, you have to remember that that um, we're all human beings, right? And so if you get to someone around, around around the part about being a human being, I'm not saying you know exactly, I don't know exactly what that person's life experience is, and I don't know exactly what that group's experience is, but if you're a human being, then there's a place of empathy that we can all sort of get to. You know, does that make sense? It, it, it does. You, you need to find people who are actually open to thinking about these things, I would imagine. Not necessarily thinking about the issue as a uh, uh, sound issue, as, as, as something that is direct, but to understand that, well, gee, I can see how you may have felt going through that. Or I can see how the story 
relates to me, even though I have never and probably will never experience anything like this. But gosh, I can see how someone might have a reaction to that one way or the other once the piece itself is put together. Is, is that where you're going with that? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I put people in situations in work where they afterwards said, you know, that was really hard for me because I cannot relate to that. And that's not who I am. And I say to them, thank you uh, for going through that with me um, because I know that that's not who you are. And it's part of who we, what we do as individuals and artists, we stretch into something that's not necessarily particularly comfortable. Does that make sense? That we move ourselves away from who we are in order to make it possible to put uh, put the work in front of people. So uh, in, in trying to create something and in looking at the issues that you look at, what kinds of things are prompting you to art today? What kinds of things are what? Prompting you toward your art today. What what issues are top of mind that you want to talk about? Oh, I think I think a lot of. The, I mean, you can come up with an issue, but a lot of the things are things that have always been concerned with basic humanity, rights, um, freedom, the, invid- the the individuality of all of us, and the the possibility to live in this world as an individual, the ability to share what you can with a group of people that maybe make life a little bit better for them. All of those things and a lot more. In making your work, I uh, also noticed that the movement could be on anyone. Mm-hmm. Male, female, <laughs> and, and just the entire spectrum of humanity. And whereas, you know, some forms, for example, uh, classical ballet is aggressively gendered in, in the way that they uh, create work. Is that something you did intensely something to sort of evolve out of uh, your thinking or just the kind of movement you want to do? Well, I mean, I think when you say aggressively gendered, I think it's only aggressively gendered uh, because it's historically, or it had been, not necessarily anymore, had been historically fixed and that men and women do these parts or whatever you want to label people that they do these particular parts you know you'll jump because you look like this and you'll uh, you'll be lifted because you look like that i think we're in a lot of ways we've gotten past a lot of that um but i do think a lot of artists like me who both wanted to sort of break things down but also just didn't want to say that uh you can't do this to someone in the room would just put people in parts, you know? And sometimes it's a political thing and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just like, you know what? It would be really interesting to see this smaller person who I'm not used to seeing pick someone up, pick up this larger person who we uh, may not think they can. And then if they figure out a way to do it, and it just, it's that it becomes a different color, a different texture, a different notion of how the world could work. And it, 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 goes to the advantage of the artist because the artist then has a wider palette to pick from. So the same thing in the costuming where the, you know, the costume can be worn by anyone. I, I noticed that, uh, again, the aggressive gender, you know, if you are a uh, woman in classical ballet, you're going to wear a uh, pancake tutu or a tool. Yeah. And uh, if you are a man, you're going to be wearing a, Tights there, just a little bit too tight in a tunic, and <laughs> <laughs> so it looks like you're never in shape. <laughs> it's like, or, or you actually must be in perfect shape in order to pull it off. Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, mm-hmm. I notice that you know a lot of loose flowing garments, a lot of uh, large leg pants. Is, is that something you see the clothing as being part of the choreography? I see the. What I think is motion is is just is and is real and is also suggested. And often I think what I want to do is I want to amplify it. So I'm not really so interested um, 
I'm not so interested in making sure that how do I say this? Making sure that you see how exquisite someone's body is because they've been working so hard. I think we sort of take that for granted. If you see them jump five feet off the ground and turn three times and land and pick someone else up, you assume there that there's something there. It might even be more to our advantage to, as they used to say, the old folks used to say, leave something to the imagination, right? So leave something to the imagination so we imagine uh, what that body looks like under there. Yeah, the body is a huge part of the dance thing, but it shouldn't be the part. It's not it's not just called body. It's called a dance thing. And so if you don't, if I don't show you the body, it doesn't mean that it's not there. And it doesn't mean that you can't get a sense, a visceral sense of what it's like. So, you know, you have to see uh, the body to sort of understand it. Yeah, but you can also, what we want you to understand is the, is the motion, right? You wanna, in a way, you want you want people to understand the body, but in another way, you want them to get away from the body because if it's about the motion, then the body might just be a little distracting. Now, I don't know if I believe what I just said, but it sounds good to me. <laughs> well, you shouldn't give me food for thought in that regard because mm -hmm. I'm already thinking through other folks who, who strip down as much as possible to see as much the body and much the line and as much of what people are look like underneath as possible. And they do that purposely. Yeah. And well, I think if you're if you're working with line and things like that, and line is very difficult because uh, we've decided what it is in each situation in the past. We've decided what it is in each situation for so long that if you want to really change the idea of what line is and what uh, the body can look like and what beauty is, then and for some folks, you do have to take things off so that people will understand they can get an idea of of what your aesthetic is without the noise of of, of a rustling skirt or a, a pair of pants that have a little tag and 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 motion after them. So it is. You're right. It is. It's what you're after. So let's look into the future, or actually the present and the future. What what kind of things are you working on now, as far as uh? theme aesthetic how are you evolving well i don't know if i'm evolving i'm uh I try to get stuck in one place but uh right now i'm really pushing soft solace of a slightly descendant lost life in parentheses suck it uh that's what we're going to be premiering in just about a month and i'm working hard to get that up and going and that's about as a lot of the work is now, I think, about sort of mental, emotional, uh, psychological states of being uh, an artist, being a man, being a black man. Those are some of the things that I'm tending to work on. There's been a lot of hmm, discussion, language around what that means. And I just like to make sure that, I, that I'm not quiet on that. So. So looking at, you know, the state of both masculinity and the black man in this current situation or this current era we're in. I'm sorry, say that one more time. You're looking at masculinity and the black man and yeah. how that relates to our, to our current times. Sure. I mean, but it's not just masculinity. It's, just, it's masculinity, yes, but it's about being just being a human being as well, right? And that being a black man is not always about being, and this is this part is not always about being uh, um, some kind of totem to an ideal, whether the ideal is the ideal positive or the ideal negative, right? So whether you're a, a you know you're a black hole that all evil things sink into, or you're you're a black diamond that all everything sort of shines out of, and that everything can sort of grow from. There's got to be something about being a human being in there as well. And looking forward, what's the future for RMK look like? I think the future looks bright. We're trying to grow. Uh, we're stable right now. You know, knock wood off. I know the wood I can, I can, and knock on it as long as people keep supporting the work. So if anyone's listening to this and anything I've said is interesting and you want to support the work, go to Robert Moses Kin. 
dot org and uh, help us sort of move things forward. You know, we're 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 doing everything we can to do everything we want to do. We've got our um, seniors program is up and going now. We're working in in schools with uh, youth right now in, in elementary and high school programs. Going to start very soon. Or in community centers, boys and girls clubs. Some of this is new. You know, we're doing all the stuff that we've wanted to do in this moment. The this last two years have been hard, but it's also been a way for us to sort of slow down and figure out how to make some things happen that we have been wanting to happen for a long time. So we're moving some of those things forward. A lot of things going on, yeah. Well, I just wish you all the good fortune going forward. I mean, you've been a shining light in the, the Bay Area art scene. I truly appreciate the work that you've been doing for the last 25, 30 years. And I appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you very much, Robert, for being with us. Well, and, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing all the things that come in the future. Well, well I just like to say thank you, Jamie. And I want to make sure that I come up with something that I can stomp you with now that I, that I, well, musically, that I, <laughs> so I don't, I'm not always the person walking away from these conversations going, Again, so so I'm gonna, I'm gonna come up with something. I'm gonna be like, who who played who played that chord on this song? Because somebody was sick for an hour with food poisoning, and we'll figure that one out. All right, looking forward to it. All right, thanks, Jamie. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening today. Mod Pod, the Museum of Dance podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other discerning streaming services. Remember to subscribe and rate us. Give us five stars because we are fabulous. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Museum of Dance is a nonprofit organization. We work to preserve and contextualize the universal art of dance for the greater public through innovative exhibitions, diverse educational programs, and accessible archival collections. Explore what moves you at museumdance.org. You can sign up here for emails, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram.